Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we begin a new series we're calling Why Church Matters. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where he asks us to consider the difference between membership and partnership. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. We're going to be in Matthew 13 this morning. Uh, last week, we wrapped up our 10 and a half month series on the book of Genesis. Uh, if you missed last week, we will be, um, to answer the question I hope you're asking, which is, when is Exodus going to come? Uh, we will be doing a series on Exodus probably next fall. Um, there's a couple of conversations we wanted to have uh, before that, and so uh, this is one of them. Um, but we'll be picking up our kind of in-depth study of the scriptures. Uh, Genesis left us with a giant cliffhanger. We've got the people of God reconciled with each other, right? The family has gotten back together, but they're in the wrong land. Uh, They're in Egypt. And uh, God has said, don't stay in Egypt. I need you back in the promised land, what was referred to then as Canaan and later Israel. And so we're just going to leave it. Uh, They waited 430 years. Uh, We're going to wait 10 months or so, uh, and then we'll pick the story back up. Uh, but if you have your Bible, we'll be in Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew 13 is a story that Jesus tells to the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a parable of Jesus. It's a story he tells to his world when they find themselves in a space where they are squeezed. Uh, they're confused. They're, um, they're, they're under pressure. Uh, and the, the pressure is coming from all sorts of angles. Uh, the world of Jesus was a world that was divided along political lines. Uh, what should be one nation at the time of Jesus was splintered into all these different political parties. Uh, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, you had the Zealots, you had the Pharisees, and all of them had their own unique approach to how do we fix the political problem of our culture? How do we save the, the nation? Uh, and so at the time of Jesus, the culture was divided politically. Sound familiar? <laughs> Uh, in addition to that, they were squeezed, and everyone had their own like, moral perspective. Uh, those four parties each had a moral perspective, a religious approach, um, but every person kind of had their own understanding of what is the right way to deal with the moral problems of our day. In the time of Jesus, there were eight great debates. Uh, Jesus is constantly interacting with these eight great debates of his day. There were religious debates. Uh, how do we deal with the biggest moral problems of our day? That was the question uh, in Jesus' time, and people were divided over how do we deal with the moral problems, the ethical problems of our day. Sound familiar? Um, not just that. Uh, the people of Jesus' day were pressed and squeezed financially. Uh, the Roman Empire was on the rise. At the same time of Jesus, uh, the, the Roman Empire was on the rise. Caesar Augustus, the leader of Rome, had taken what was a republic and had turned it into an empire. And in order to build the empire, you have to expand. And in order to expand, you need to have money. So how do you get money? Well, they solved the problem and they said, we're going we're to tax you. So the Romans came in and they began to tax the Jewish people pretty heavily. Uh, that was in addition to the local tax that they were already paying and the temple tax that they were paying. Historians disagree a little bit on this, but estimates are somewhere between 65% to 90% of your income, depending on who you listen to, uh, was taxed. 
So imagine living off of 10 to 30% of your income. Uh, that was Jesus' day and age. They were pressed financially. Uh, inflation was on the rise. Costs of goods were on the rise. But what you made was pretty stagnant. Sound familiar. Uh, in addition to this, uh, there was a group of people who were, it was a growing group at the time of Jesus, who were saying, you know what, for us, especially young people, for us, religion is like, it's just not the answer. It's not the way. We're not really into religion. Our, our parents were into the, the Jewish faith and our great-grandparents and that, their great-grandparents. But for us, we have a whole new approach to life. Uh, the the Greeks came in with this uh, idea that they called Hellenization of the world, the, the making Greek of the world. And uh, the young people especially were getting caught up in this like, new way of thinking. For them, they said, you know what's more interesting than the prophets of the Bible? What's more interesting than the prophets are the poets of the Greek culture. What's more interesting than the prophets are the philosophers, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle you know what's more interesting than the simple, quiet way of life of my grandparents and great-grandparents? What's more interesting is the new technology that the Romans brought, theater. Uh, or um, the Romans were the ones who brought to the Jewish people running water and toilets. You know what's more interesting than taking the shovel? This is in the book of Leviticus. There's a whole list of rules for how to take the shovel, leave the camp, Find a couple rocks, do your thing, bury it, come back into the camp. And the Romans came in and said, we'll give you running water and toilets. And the young people especially said, you know what, that sounds better. We're signing up for that. So at the time of Jesus, there was a whole group, especially of young people who were saying, yeah, we're not really interested in those ancient things. We're interested in the new thing. Sound familiar. Uh, top it all off, there was a whole group of people that were growing disenfranchised that change was even possible. They were giving up hope altogether. Uh, there was a growing group of people who were what, the, what Jesus will refer to as poor in spirit. They've had their spirits crushed again and again and again and again. There were all of these talks of revolution, and we're going to, one day God's going to restore our people, but they've seen revolutionaries rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall. Uh, and for many of them, they, just, they, they had given up on the belief that tomorrow could be any different than today. Tomorrow is just going to be another repeat of today. And they were growing sad. They were growing tired. When Jesus uh, does his famous Sermon on the Mount, when he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, the assumption is there's a lot of people in his crowd who are very poor in spirit, filled with anxiety, filled with Deep darkness, sadness, depression. Sound familiar? It's, uh, of course it does. Uh, in many ways, um, this is what we feel, right? The political division in our culture feels like it's unprecedented. Uh, the financial stress uh, that you're, you're, more likely, you're most likely under. Most likely you've had goods go up, costs of product go up. Cost of gro My guess is your grocery bill has gone up, and it's disproportionate to the income that your employer, or if you're an employer, you feel this especially because you're trying to figure out how do I help my employees deal with the cost of inflation when I too am dealing with the cost of inflation, and uh, wages are kind of stagnant, but cost has gone on the rise. Uh, 
And the effect that this has had on people's faith, uh, more than ever, we're, we're, we're reading the statistics of people walking away from faith, but you probably had the encounter that I've had where you're driving down the street and you see a church that once had a full parking lot most of the week and uh, all sorts of really great community mission and outreach and all these really incredible things, and now you drive by that same church and there's a for sale sign in the window or the lights are off on a Sunday morning. And uh, there's like the, the new shifting world. Um, or uh, you probably have people in your own relationships who are dealing with feelings of isolation, anxiety, loss, a uh, sense of what is the purpose, what is the meaning of any of it. Uh, it's sometimes easy to look at the Bible and say, okay, that's an old story for way back then, um, but we live in a whole new world with a whole new set of problems. But, but very realistically, while some of the details of our problems have shifted, very realistically, the problems that Jesus was addressing to, in his world are very similar to the problems we're addressing today, still today. Now, the really good news is that if we believe that, if you, follow with, if you agree with me on that, if you follow me on that, then reading the words of Jesus become not just, okay, uh, how do I worship a God who used to do some things, but how does Jesus speak into the problems that may, in his world in our world, what would he say to us in our current crises? And uh, if you take that approach, well, Jesus has a, a, a number of really brilliant teachings. Um, one of them is a parable that he speaks to a group of people who are feeling a lot of what we're feeling. Uh, it's a parable of wheat and weeds. A parable is a story. Uh, the word parable, actually, the rabbis referred to parables as handles on truth. So how do you deal with the heaviest truth? If we could tell a story, maybe we could carry the truth with us. So Jesus tells this parable. It's found in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir... Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then, then, where then did all the weeds come from? Ah, an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them all up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles and, uh, to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay, now, firsthand, you're like, okay, what does this farming parable have to do with anything? Uh, it's an agricultural metaphor that is probably lost on many of us. Um, what, what, what's going on in this particular story? Uh, if you find yourself asking that question, you're in very good company. Jesus' own disciples had questions about, what are you talking about, Jesus? So they asked Jesus. Uh, if you drop down to verse 36, he'll answer them. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's a reference he uses often as he pulls it from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, but he often uses it as a reference to himself. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into, a, all, into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, whoever has ears, let them hear." Now, if you were with us in our Matthew series, we looked at a lot of like, okay, what do we do with this apocalyptic language? Um, But Jesus essentially is saying, so you can go back and find that sermon. It was two years ago now. Um, but, But Jesus seems to be saying at a very basic level that the kingdom of evil, weeds, are growing. The kingdom of evil around us is growing. Uh, And someday the weeds will be dealt with. And again, it's all this apocalyptic language. What do we do with that? But Someday they'll be dealt with, but right now in our world, evil in our world is growing. To which we say, uh, yeah, of course, we see this. Um, I say that to say uh, I've been doing what a lot of you have been doing and watching the news a lot lately, uh, following the story in Israel and uh, the terrorist attacks from Hamas on Israel and I'm just trying to get my head around what is going on currently. And uh, it's hard when uh, you... So these kinds of stories are news stories. Many of them around our world are news stories. And you pray for people because you know it's people that are involved. And then you make friends um, in a region. Uh, Jeremy, my my good friend Jeremy and I have a chance to go to Israel at least yearly. And um, we have the opportunity over the last several years to make a number of really good friends in Israel. Uh, and, and so you then start watching it a little bit differently. In fact, actually, last week, uh, so what happened, the att- first attack was last week, uh, last weekend, and I had an entire sermon, which I ended up giving, um, but I had an entire sermon about the, the land of Israel and how, why would God choose the land of Israel and how this is the land of enough and how God was teaching his people dependence and uh, what is the land of the shepherd? And what is the land of the farmer? And all of this, this, this whole sermon rooted in what is the land? Why does God want this land? And then the attack happens. And uh, honestly, I was like, what, now what do I do? Um, what do you do? Uh, and so I, to be honest with you, it was, it was almost too close to home yet that I didn't know even how to bring it up or talk about it. And so what do you do? I guess you just, sometimes you just give the sermon, but you do so with a bit of a tear in your eye. Like, okay, now, um, now what? Uh, everyone has an opinion on where we should go next. Everyone has a thought or an idea about kind of what is the appropriate way to retaliate, um, how far is too far, how much is too much, all of that. Um, but whatever your political positioning, however you would see the solution to these kinds of complicated problems, we all would agree that what is happening just feels really incredibly evil. Uh, and that's just a story that resonates with me the loudest because I have friends there. But there's, if you look around our world, Ukraine is still in the midst of a war. If you follow that, if you've been following that, uh, terrifying. Uh, the Rohingya people are still a displaced people who are getting persecuted simply because they're a certain kind of people. Uh, Iran, Afghanistan are kind of these breeding pots now of uh, Lebanon, uh, breeding pots of kind of anti-American, anti-democracy kind of mentality, and it's all kind of ripe. And there is, in fact, a long list that you could go through. What do we do with it all? Uh, 
The question we ask when we look at our like, political divisions of our world, the complicated cultural problems, the financial problems, the global issues of our day, uh, and, then, and then the technology problems of like, how is AI going to factor into all this? If you've been playing around with AI, you're like, okay, is this the computer takeover? <laughs> is this like the robot? My, my kids, when we go to D&W and we see Tally, you know Tally, the little robot that counts? No? Yeah, yeah. My uh, son will always say the robots are taking over. So, so uh, like what on earth? The question you find yourself asking is what on earth is going on? What on earth is going on? It feels like everything is shifting all at once. Do you feel that? I feel that. Uh, it feels like everything is, is like moving and the ground below us is shifting all at once. And uh, everything is happening really, really quickly. All of the really hard to discuss subjects that 50 years ago, it was, okay, there's certain things you don't talk about out of politeness or respect or whatever. whatever. Uh, all of those hard-to-discuss subjects, it's like we're having that conversation about all of them plus more all at the same time. Uh, so you want to just go fishing with your uncle, but instead you've got to talk about, like, here's a list, uh, climate change and your stance on refugees and gender equality and race and war and safety and guns and sexual abuse and sexual identity and foreign policy and medicine, and vaccinations, and public education, and technology, and apparently now aliens is a conversation again. And uh, what does it mean to be a true American? That's a conversation. And we're having these conversations, all of the conversations that many of, many of you have avoided having, all at the exact same time. And you can almost feel the tension in the air. And the question you keep coming back to is, what on earth is going on? Is this normal? Is this normal? Uh, is it always been this way? Because it does kind of feel like everything is shifting. Is, does every generation have the same experience? Or is our generation, um, the, the time we are living in, somehow unique in the world? Now, uh, if you know me at all, you know that there is an idea that I've been relatively, uh, maybe the word obsessed is the right word. I don't love that word. But uh, I've been a bit obsessed with an idea that I stumbled upon uh, about 15 years ago or so, and uh, I try not to talk about it too much, even though at some level it feels like, we, why are we not all talking about this? Um, but there's an idea that came out in uh, a book that is where I first encountered it, of 500-year shifts. And the book came out in 2008. It was a book called The Great Emergence by a theologian named Phyllis Tickle. Uh, I know it's a funny name, but a brilliant woman. Phyllis Tickle. Um, again, uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me yammer on about Phyllis Tickle and this particular book, but it has been six or seven years. And so if you're new within six or seven years, maybe not. And so uh, if for those of you who've heard this, uh, me talk about this, just bear with me for a few minutes so I can give a little bit of a recap. Um, but, but I find her theory to be fascinating and her cultural analysis to be really important, especially now. Uh, Phyllis Tickle will say, she'll suggest that what we are experiencing right now is not normal. Yes, what your grandparents, uh, your, your grandparents or great-grandparents' generation, they saw cultural change. They saw shifting, but not at the level that we are experiencing now. That's her theory. Uh, in fact, what she suggests is that about 25 years ago, we began experiencing a shift in the world, and that shift will continue for the next 25 years or so, if history is our best indicator of future. Uh, then we'll see that same shift over the next 25 years or so, and in the midst of this 50-year swing that happens every 500 years, 
everything shifts. New technology is on the rise. Uh, the, the way we think about government and government structure, all the way down to how we think of religion and the church, all of it tends to shift everything. Now, initially, I read that, kind of her introduction to her book, and I thought, okay, that seems a bit reactive, seems a bit reactionary. Uh, and then she gives some information that I found to be compelling. Uh, 500 years ago, so if she says it happens every 500 years, almost like clockwork, 500 years ago, we went through a pretty massive shift. Uh, in the year roughly, about roughly 1500 AD, we have the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there was new technology, the printing press, and that caused us, one of the factors that caused us to enter into the Industrial Revolution, so how we functioned changed. And uh, then empires began to decline, and the rise of the city-state emerged. All right around 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, uh, 500 and what, five years, four years uh, ago, uh, Martin Luther took his 95 suggestions, his 95, these are wrong, 95 thesis, and he nailed it to the door of a church, sparking a debate within the church of how do we do church, how do we worship, questioning everything. And you could make the argument that over the last 500 years, everything shifted as a response. 500 years before that, uh, roughly the year 1000 AD, um, specifically the year 1054, there was another major shift. We don't talk about this one as much because we are Protestant, um, but this shift happened between the West and the East. Uh, it's known as the Great Schism among many. It is the Reformation Day of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, and with it, uh, a whole slew of technological advances and how we see the world. Uh, back up another 500 years, and you have the great decline and later fall of the Roman Empire. And with the fall of the Roman Empire, you have the rise of the modern Catholic Church. That's about 500 AD or so. You tracking so far? 500 years before that was a pretty major shift. Any guesses? <laughs> yeah, the birth of Jesus. That was a pretty big deal. Um, and the birth of Jesus did, would you agree, change everything? But in addition to the birth of Jesus, politically, the Roman Empire was on the rise. Roads were on the rise. International travel was on the rise. That was 500 years ago, or, five, or 2,000 years ago. Now, uh, that's where Phyllis Tickle kind of leaves her book. She's like, she goes back to Jesus. Um, but I asked the question, I wonder if you could keep going back. Like, is this like, well, it turns out um, about 500 years before that, there was the third largest event recorded in our Bible for the Jewish people, their old, their, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. The third largest event happened known as the Babylonian exile. The Jewish people are brought to Babylon. They're forced to there where they write down the Bible. And, and we, would have, we would not have our written Bible as it is had they not been exiled into Babylon. That was about 500 BC. Now I say the third largest event because there were two that were larger. Uh, the kingship of a guy named David Remember the guy that slew the dragon? The dragon, the, the giant. <laughs> that's, that's how like heresies get started. Like, did you know? <laughs> uh, and then uh, there was the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus, uh, Moses leads the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. Well, it turns out, and he guesses when those happen, 1000 BC, King David. 
uh, is on the, the, he unites the monarchy, Israel's united nation for a short period of time. That's 1,000 B.C. And then 1,500 B.C. is the Exodus. That's where scholars most likely date the Exodus, Moses, that whole story. 500 years before that, Abraham. Yeah. Now, um, you can make the case, Phyllis Tickle does, that most of our Bible and most of our world history it takes place during those 500-year swings. Are there things that happen in between those 500-year blocks? Yes, and they're in our Bible too. But most of our Bible is written during these 500-year slices of history where history is really concentrated. Okay, some of you, that's a recap. But for those of you who it's not, come on, tell me your mind is blown. It's, oh, I remember, yes, I remember first reading this and thinking, how are we not all talking about this? This is incredible. What does this mean? Um, this, this brilliant lady with a funny name, what are you trying to suggest to us? Uh, is everything, right now, are we in a spot where everything really is changing? Can we draw a direct line from our current time all the way back to the fall of the Roman Empire, to Jesus, to the Babylonians, to David, to Moses, to Abraham? Is there a direct line that you can draw? How are we not all talking about this? Um, now, uh, I was rereading that book uh, during COVID, during uh, the lockdowns. And uh, one of the things I, I'm convinced of is that you will gather more out of reading a book that's really great five times versus reading five average books. Okay, so like every once in a while, I try to pull a book off the shelf that really mattered the first time I read it and see what did I miss? Uh, and uh, this was one of those books that I pulled off the shelf and I was reading through the book and I caught a footnote in her book. It's in the footnote, but this is what the footnote says and I found it really interesting. It says, one of the oddities of our cyclical upheavals is that they have always been accompanied by some great generalized human illness. Labeled by historians as pandemics, there has been, this is by the way written in 2008. There had been only three recorded ones prior to our time. The first occurred in the 5th and 6th centuries. The second between the 8th and 14th. The third was the devouring distress most commonly known to us as the Black Death. The result of such devastation and human vulnerability was, and inevitably always is, a generalized reconsideration of the efficacy of the church and the worth of resources extended to it. Why do we give to the church? Likewise, there were and always are shifts in popular as well as clerical understanding about the purposes of religion in general and of its temporal rewards in particular. What does it matter now? Whether the reoccurrence of pandemics simultaneously with the reoccurrence of ecclesial upheavals is pure coincidence or whether, as some would have it, there is some other connection is for a later and more adequate informed time to determine. At the moment... All that can be said is that there is a co-occurrence between history's pandemics and our times of reformation. Now, when she wrote the book, I know, when she wrote the book, it was 2008. When she died in 2015, she was speculating. Because she's saying, usually, these, every other one, they tend to have some kind of major thing. So she said, maybe it was the AIDS epidemic, pandemic uh, of the 80s. Um, or maybe it was terrorism, uh, 2001. But since then, we've gone through a season of human illness uh, and pandemic. Would you agree? <laughs> is it possible that right now, um, when, when, if history is our greatest indicator of future, 
that everything may be up for shift. Everything that we're feeling is shifting. Maybe everything really is shifting. Now, I say that because we could see that as a threat. We don't like change by nature. People don't do well in change. We can see it as a threat, or we can see it as a tremendous opportunity to get really clear about who the church is and why the church exists. Why did Jesus, the only institution, uh, although the church is not an institution, it's a gathered group of people, why did Jesus seem to insist that it would be his church who who would change the world? What is the church? Why are we here? Now, um, my hunch is, uh, so I, I love this little detail. She said, like, every 500 years, people start asking the question, ah, should we give to the church? Why give to the church? Uh, maybe that's a question you've asked. So where does my money go when I put it in the offering basket? It's probably something you've asked. Uh, just to be really clear, I hope you're not asking that as, I hope we're clear on that at South Harbor Church, though I speculate, maybe we're not as clear. Um, but I would hope that we're clear, that you know, like, oh, wow, this is what we give to when we give to the church. Uh, but to be clear, the thing we believe, uh, we, we spend a lot of energy and a lot of time thinking about your gifts to the church is we believe the commission of Jesus was to make disciples, period. Uh, that disciple making is our, our number one priority and that it's out of disciples of Jesus that human relief efforts happen, uh, poverty gets addressed and, and hopefully resolved, but but the New Testament doubled down on this. Our, your, your New Testament authors, in particular, a gentleman by the name of Paul. Paul will actually give this elaborate metaphor about who the church is. And he'll say, okay, what's possible is they might think the church is a pastor and they just attend it. So he's really clear and he says, no, no, no. That's, if that's in your brain, you got to get that out of your brain. In fact, in, in the church that he writes to in Corinth, uh, the letter is 1 Corinthians, the church he writes to, they were dealing with this, well, we really like Peter better than Paul. Uh, we really like Apollo. He was a great communicator. He's trying to be really clear to this church, and he says, this is what the church is like. You're like a body. You need each other. And not just a body, he, he doubles down on the metaphor, and he says, you are the body of Jesus on this planet. Meaning that the way Jesus hugs, heals, touches on our planet now is through the hands, arms, feet, lips, mouth of the church. It's how we, sh- we share the message. It's a bold statement, Paul. You can read it yourself. It's 1 Corinthians 12. Um, so I, I, don't know, I don't know if we're always clear when we talk about the church that that's what we're talking about. Um, it's really easy to see the church as an institution with like programs and worship services. And we can forget that we have, ha- we have a much higher, more important mission as the church. Um, we are the ones, us disciples of Jesus, who Jesus entrusted to make more disciples who would be his body on the earth. Uh, now, um, if everything is shifting it's easy to get to the spot where we can, get, we can see it as a threat and we can start saying things like, yeah, well, statistics are saying church is becoming irrelevant, especially to the young people. The nuns are on the rise. Like there's no religious affiliation that are on the rise. Or we can see it as an opportunity. Uh, we can begin to ask the difficult questions. Are we doing what Jesus told us to do? Or has our mission gotten hijacked? 
Every 500 years, the church has, um, I love the image of, that Phyllis Tickle uses. She talks about how every 500 years, the church has been forced because of lots of things to have a rummage sale. It's like we take all the things, all of our practices, our beliefs, our structures, our traditions, all of the things, and we drag them out to the curb. And now we have to make a decision which of these things are essential that we should never let go of. It's essential. And which of these things have, like, they may have worked, they may have been helpful in a previous generation, but they're no longer helpful now. She says, like, the church has to have a giant rummage sale and rediscover what is essential and what has simply gotten in the way of the essential. What has become noise to the essential? Uh, what do we have to sell off, get rid of, and what do we have to double down on and say, no matter what happens, this we can't get rid of? Maybe another way to think of it is, you've, you've heard the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know that phrase? There's a lot of bathwater in religion, we should be honest about that. There's a lot of dirty things that our tradition carries with it that we should let go of, confess that we got caught up in. Turn on the news in the early 2000s and you couldn't go a week without seeing some pastor on some stage like this and like me doing some crazy scandal, really, really hurting people. That is dirt in our bathwater that we should get rid of. But you've also felt, like I felt, that there are people that are saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus because of that. We should not get rid of what's most essential because this is one of those opportunities to take a look at ourselves, look in the mirror and say, okay, what is essential and what is not essential? What has gotten in the way? What can we confess that we just got wrong? Uh, so we're going to talk about that over the next six weeks. Um, two, two questions I want to really address is, uh, first, why does the church matter? And two, in this rummage sale, what is essential? What is essential if there's a rummage sale that we should never let go of? Uh, and in particular, what does it mean for us to partner together as the church? Now, we use this word partner intentionally. I think maybe one of the things that uh, we should reevaluate in the rummage sale is how we think of what it means to be part of a church. Uh, throughout the Bible, the language of partnership is the language you hear. Now, you can easily jump to, well, isn't that the same as membership? A little bit, um, as much as it is linking arms with each other. But the language you have, for, for instance, Philippians 1, Paul will write, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in Philemon 1, Paul will write, I pray for your partnership with us in the faith that it may be effective in the deepening of your understanding and every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So Paul refers to the relationship we have with each other as a partnership. Now again, is it the same as a membership? I get that we kind of use them interchangeably and, and I understand where the word membership comes from and how we think of it. But I wonder if in the great rummage sale, one of the things we have to address is, is the church a building that we go to that we are members of? Or is the church a group of people that we are committed to. Those are inherently two different things. Because if it's a building that we're members of, it's really easy to uproot and say, I don't like that building, and, or, or I don't want to be a member of that thing because somebody in that building offended me or somebody in that building did something. That, but if the church is a commitment of, with people that we are committed to, uh, for instance, I'm a member of a gym, and I am a member of Costco. 
and I am a partner in my marriage, and I am a partner with my wife in the raising of our children. See how those are different? A membership typically requires an exchange, right? They give me my, I go to my gym, I pay money to the gym, and they give me uh, the gym equipment and the gym space to work out. I pay money to Costco, and they give me army-sized quantities of peanut butter. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but there's, a good, there's an exchange of goods. In a partnership, it's much more about relationship. It's less of an exchange, and it's more of a, we are committed to each other. Now, commitment is not popular these days, right? Like, we've become a culture where it's like, just swipe right or left. I don't know which way is let go of. Is right the good one? You're not going to answer that. Never mind. Uh, but, but we don't like it. Whatever it is, we don't like We uh, cancel any time. Just click the unfollow button. Um, relationships, though, by necessity, if, if my wife and I are going to be a partner in this relationship, if we're going we're gonna to figure out how to parent our kids, we are, uh, it, it often requires pain. You don't see the world the same. You're committed to each other through the pain, not because there will be no pain. With an exchange of goods and services, as soon as Costco stops providing my peanut butter, I'll, find, I'll go to Aldi, right? Like that's how we think when it becomes membership-based. As soon as my gym doesn't give me space, I'll find a new gym. But if we're committed, um, so we refer to partnership. Uh, and again, the first Christians took this seriously. They said, you are the body of Christ on this earth. Each of you is a part of it. Um, Jesus actually will say this in his prayer. One of the few prayers we have where Jesus, we actually read how Jesus prayed. So Jesus often teaches us how to pray, but there's a space where Jesus tells him what he's praying for. And uh, Jesus prays this in, in John 17. He says, I have given them, uh, the them is you, he's talking about you, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And what's the word, word that comes next in your Bible? Then, 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 then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. It's our unity. It's our partnership together in the gospel. That's how we tell the world, oh, that we're followers of Jesus. Which brings us back to the parable. Um, Jesus says that the weeds are growing in our world. And if you watch the news, you feel what I feel. Um, it... You've probably seen pictures like I've seen pictures where uh, I saw a picture that sometimes you see pictures of people and it's just really hard to erase those images. And I saw one of a little boy and a little girl and they were the same age as my little boy and little girl. And I just couldn't help but It's really hard to look at what's going on and say that's, that is so evil. It is so evil. And regardless of how do we get through this, we're going to all see that differently, but it is genuinely evil. We all agree on that. And Jesus tells a parable and he says, there has been an enemy and he's sowing weeds and we should not be surprised to see that the weeds are growing. But, he said, there is another kingdom and it too is growing. There is a good farmer and he is also sowing, and his kingdom too is growing. The kingdom of God is growing. 
I am 100% convinced, uh, 99% convinced, that we are in some sort of a new reformation as a church. It's a unique reformation. I think we're in something new. I think God is doing something. I think he's trying to wake something up in us. And it's not just here. This is globally. I think God is doing something new, uh, something beautiful in our world right now. Um, So, for instance, uh, China. In 1945, did you know that there were 950,000 Christians in China? Today, there are over 20 million Christians in China. Uh, every sing- from 950,000 to 20 million. Uh, every single week in Africa, uh, different spots have higher, different spots have lower. But if you take the continent, uh, they add about 50,000 new people to the church of Jesus uh, uh, through baptism every single week. 50,000. In Latin America, there are every week at least 250 churches of 150 more people or, or more people that spring into existence. Uh, the church is going faster around the world than we've ever seen it before, ever in human history. Now, is there still a lot of evil in our world? Absolutely. Um, 25 years ago, we were able to say that while we were sleeping last night, 45,000 children died of starvation or preventable disease. 45,000 children a day. Today, that's down to 14,000. Now, we have a long way to go, but there is a big difference between 45,000 and 14,000. God is doing something in our world, and he's using the church to do it. Uh, 25 years ago, 80% of the population on our planet was illiterate. 80% could not read or write, which is how you kind of make your way up in the culture. Uh, they couldn't do it. Today, that number has dropped to 20%. Do you know who's been the driving force behind that? It's been the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, 25 years ago, one out of every six people on the planet had no access to clean drinking water. Today, it's one out of 12. Who's drilled the most wells? Ask the UN. It's been the church of Jesus Christ. Who's built the most medical centers? Where did the word hospital come from? It was the people who gave hospitality. It was Christians. Who's provided the most medical care? Who are the most willing to give up their life to go serve someone else who's in a tougher space in life? Who's willing to build the most homes? Again and again and again, it's the church of Jesus Christ. God is doing something. Um, Should I go on? I'll give you a couple more. Uh, Christians have been on the front lines of things like economic development and democracy, human rights, awareness and protection, science and technology, medicine and health, social work, the protection of children, the protection of women. The church has been on the front lines uh, against the the fight against sex trafficking, the care for the elderly and disabled, prevention of animal cruelty, prison reform, workers' rights, international fair trade, microfinance. The church is responsible for things like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, World Vision, Christian Aid, Amnesty International, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, The church has provided relief and education efforts for teen moms. Uh, We've been largely responsible for the reduction in, in abortion rates, the rise in adoption efforts, foster care, orphanages, the church is behind the creation of the first public libraries, education. Did you know that of the 110 pioneer universities in the U.S., 100 of them, of 110, have Christian origin. 
The church has produced people like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, Mr. Rogers, uh, and the hundreds and thousands of unnamed, underappreciated people who have been the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. Let me be clear, if I'm not being clear, the church, the church is the body of Christ, and while we see the weeds in our world growing, don't be mistaken that the church is not also growing. The kingdom of God is, do, is on the move and is doing something, and you are part of it. And as we turn on the news and we see the devastation, the question we have to keep asking ourselves is who? Who will be the ones who are spreading the wheat? Who will be the ones who are bringing the good news? Who will be the ones who take the work seriously? Who will be the ones who are willing to commit to each other, even if we don't always agree with each other on the specifics? Who will be so committed to each other in the name of Jesus that we will walk through the darkest of valleys on our behalf? Uh, we will go with each other through the lowest seasons. Who? And if you're saying, I, I think I'd do that, I I'm in. Jesus says, well, that's the future hope of the world. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, may your kingdom be our first priority. May your heart be our, uh, our number one desire. May our lips exist to proclaim the good news of you. Uh, Lord, may you use our arms to be the ones who stretch out and love the hurting in our world. King Jesus, would you remind us that your kingdom is on the rise? We pray all this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? As always, we hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.